Can you hear me? All right, there you go. <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, and it is so great to be with you here this morning. Uh, normally, as R- Greg said earlier, I'm downstairs in the youth room, and uh, so I'm glad to be up here today, and also glad to see some of the youth up here as well. Um, that's exciting. So, as Greg already said, Wednesday was the beginning of Lent. It was Ash Wednesday, and we remembered that and commemorated that here on Wednesday. And uh, now we're in this period of Lent, and today is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent, it, literally it means springtime. And it's this time of preparation, of preparing our hearts, our minds, our bodies for Resurrection Sunday, for Easter. Uh, it's a time where we symbolically enter into the wilderness. You know, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, or actually prior to his ministry, he entered into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted and was tempted, experienced experienced hunger and temptation, and then after that, he was ready for ministry. And that's sort of what we're doing during Lent. Some people embody this by giving up different things and then adding other things. Like, for example, I gave up a lot of podcasts, <laughs> and now I'm trying to listen to more worship music. That's sort of what I'm doing for Lent. And other people might be like, I'm giving up coffee or whatever, and you name it. And some people don't do anything, and that's fine. There's different ways to, I think, approach this season to prepare ourselves for Easter. And one way that I heard Rich describe it last year, <laughs> so this was a while ago, um, he said it's like this time where there's seeds in the ground, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's like, is there going to be life? And then Resurrection Sunday is that time where new life spring forth, springs forth out of the cold, dark ground. And he quoted somebody who said that Lent is meant to be church's springtime. It's that time when out of darkness, out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. So Lent, I think, is actually a really crucial and amazing season in the church calendar because it prepares us for really the central part of, uh, of the Christian faith, which is Jesus's death and resurrection. And we're doing a series during Lent called Again and Again. And it's talking about how again and again in Lent, we're reminded that brokenness brokenness finds us. Again and again, we lament. Again and again, I sin. Again and again, I don't love God. Again and again, I don't love my neighbor. Again and again, there's injustice. Again and again, there's war. Again and again, there's sadness and grief. Again and again, these cycles are occurring. And some of the titles of of the sermons will be called Again and Again, We Are Called to Listen. Again and again, God loves us first. Again and again, we are shown the way. And today's title is, Again and Again, God Meets Us. Again and again, God meets us. And just as a reminder, I realized I forgot to talk about this. If you are joining us online, if you want, you can go to onelifeseattle.org slash live, and there you can find a chat to be able to interact with others. There's a Bible app. There's a place um, for someone to pray for you. Um, That's really the best place to engage with the whole worship service if you would like to go there. Before we get into reading the text we're sticking to this morning, let's pray. God, thank you that you meet us again and again, wherever we're at. Thank you that you love us again and again. And thank you that you're with us again and again. I pray that we would sense that and know that deep down inside today, that we would just sense your love, your presence, and your goodness in the midst of whatever we're going through. Amen. So we're going to go through a passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Before we get there, though, I just want to give a little context as to what's been going on prior to this passage. So Jesus began his ministry 
and part of his ministry was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Actually, that was his whole ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God. The good news that the kingdom of God has arrived. And he talked about how the kingdom of God was for the outsider, for the leper. The kingdom of God was for um, the people who were looked down upon. The kingdom of God was even for the soldiers, which was surprising, the Roman soldiers. And the kingdom of God was backed up by these wild miracles that Jesus was like healing a man born blind. He resurrected somebody. He healed a leper. There was a woman bleeding for many years and he healed her. So Jesus' ministry was both word and deed, these miracles as well as these really um, radical messages of love for those around. And then right before the story, Jesus has gone up onto a mountain and on top of the mountain, He's praying and he has three of the 12 disciples with him. And there's something that, that happens called the transfiguration. It's this moment where he's sort of glowing brightly. It's sort of weird. And then God speaks from the clouds. And then Elijah and Moses show up. And the disciples are like, oh, what's happening? And they're sort of blown away. And, uh, but we're not talking about that story today. We're talking about what happens right afterwards. So he's coming down the mountain. And that's where we will pick off. Pick up. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So I think in this story we see Jesus meeting people in a couple of different places. We see Jesus meeting the Father where he's at, in sort of his inadequate faith and his desperation. And we see Jesus meeting the disciples where they're at. And we'll, and we'll first talk about the encounter between the Father and Jesus. And one thing I like to do, especially with the Gospels, is to use something I heard one theologian called a sanctified imagination. It's like sort of ask questions about the text and based on what you know about Jesus and other parts of the Bible and the cultural context, start adding parts to it, filling in the story and trying to really enter into what the characters were feeling and thinking in that moment. So we're going to do that with this passage. See, there's a father and he's had this child that's had seizures since he was young. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone have seizures, but it's scary. In fact, as some of you know, my son had a seizure not too long ago. That's part of the reason I'm talking about this passage, because it's been sort of important to me lately. Um, 
yeah, my son had seizures not too long ago, or not, he had a seizure, and it was really scary. I had, I'm not a medical professional, so all I knew was all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my son started convulsing, foaming at the mouth, and, and, it, and he started stop breathing, and he started turning blue, and it was in that moment, I just remember, I, I didn't know what to say, except like, God help. I, I just remember that's all I could say. God help. There was such a sense of helplessness, sense of inadequacy. Literally, I was on 911 talking to the operator and they're just like, put them on the side and just wait for EMTs. That was pretty much all we could do. Now, that I've learned more about seizures. I've realized that uh, a lot of times the kids come out of them and they're relatively common for kids' age, which I had no idea. <laughs> all I knew was my son wasn't breathing and he was turning blue and it was so scary. He had something called a febrile seizure, if you're curious, which is just a seizure caused by a fever spike, and he's okay now, and they think he's gonna be okay. But it was really scary at the time, so I sort of can relate to the father. Imagine, I can't imagine having that over and over again, that sense that I can't do anything to help my son. And maybe you can relate to that as well, with your child, or with your spouse, or your parents, or a sibling, or somebody you really love, and they're going through a hard time, and they're suffering, and there's nothing you can do except just be right there with them. It makes you feel helpless makes you feel inadequate. It's so much better whenever there's actually something tangible you can do to affect the outcome. And so this father's been dealing with a son who's been going through seizures for who knows how long. And then he starts hearing these stories. Starts hearing these stories about a rabbi named Jesus who's preaching this message and reaching out to the outsiders and then also healing people, healing a man born blind healing um, someone who was almost dead, healing a woman who'd been bleeding for many years. And he starts thinking, what, what if he can help me? What if he can help my son? But then he's also hearing the other side of the story. You see, Jesus was a pretty controversial figure. He wasn't universally loved. In fact, that's why he was crucified in the end. And he starts hearing the other teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the other rabbis in his town saying, no, no, that guy's a nut job. Are you kidding me? He's a lunatic. Don't follow him. He's not following the, teach, the teachings of our fathers. He's not following the teachings of Moses. Don't get, let him, don't give in to hoping that he will help you. He can't. And so the father's probably torn. Then he starts hearing that Jesus is in town. And now comes the decision. Is he going to give in to the hope? That even if a tiny, tiny bit of hope, is he going to let that hope drive him and bring him to Jesus? Or is he too worried about the pain of hopes not being fulfilled? Have you ever been in that situation where you've hoped in something and then the hope doesn't come through and you feel worse than before? And then maybe another time you're like, oh, there is something hopeful here, but I don't even want to give in to that hope because I, I just want to protect myself. I don't want to feel that pain of, of, of hopes getting dashed. <laughs> I just wonder if the father is experiencing that. But thankfully, he gave in to the hope. He let the hope bring him to where he heard Jesus was. And he gets there, and guess what? Jesus is up on the mountain. <laughs> but the disciples are there, at least nine of the 12 are. And he'd heard the disciples uh, were also able to heal people and cast out demons. In fact, earlier on in Mark, in Mark chapter six, I can't remember the verses, uh, Jesus sends out the, the disciples and tells them to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He says that they should heal people and cast out demons, and it says that they did all that, that they healed people, cast out demons. So he's thinking, all right, these disciples can help me out. And he brings his son to the disciples. And what happens? They can't help. They can't help. 
And then a crowd starts gathering around. Teachers of the law are there, these scribes, and they're talking to him. They're saying, why would you put your hope in this nut job Jesus? You know he doesn't follow the teachings of Moses. You shouldn't be trusting him. Trust us. What's wrong with you? And so I just imagine the father is going through this emotional roller coaster of having a lot of hope. It's going well, then down, crashing down, and he's torn between what the scribes are saying and what he's hoping Jesus can do for him. And then he sees people starting to point and murmur, and there's Jesus coming down from the mountain. And he's excited. Hopes are raised up again. And so Jesus comes and asks what's happening, and the father immediately starts explaining the condition of his son and how the disciples were unable to help him. And right away, when the boy comes to Jesus, what happens? Gets into another seizure. By the way, one thing I realized I forgot to clarify is this story is actually talked about in other other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and they actually call it seizures and epilepsy. Um, but in Mark, he doesn't call it that. Um, so he starts having um, another seizure right in front of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't heal him immediately, but instead he asks, how long has he been like this? Um, that is verse, verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? I've always wondered, why does Jesus ask that? Like, is it like, Jesus is like, okay, you know, I'm good up to five years. But if we start hitting six or seven, I'm sorry, buddy, you're out of luck. You know, like, why is he asking that? (laughs) It's just a strange question. You know what I think it is, is I, I think that Jesus is asking the Father to share his story. He's asking the Father to share his pain. He's asking the Father to share his hopes of what Jesus can do for him. He's allowing the Father to share all the baggage that he's carrying and how long he's been carrying it. And the father says, talks about how it's been happening since birth or since he was young. Then he says, if you can do anything, this is the father, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Or actually this translation says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What's interesting is he's not sure if Jesus has the power and the ability to heal his son, But what does he actually believe about Jesus? He believes he's compassionate. He's leaning on Jesus' compassion, but he's not quite sure about Jesus' ability. So he doubts Jesus' power, but he doesn't doubt his compassion. And what's interesting is that word compassion in Greek, it's splenknizomai, and um, it's the number one emotion attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. So if you look up what emotion is Jesus described as having the most, it's that one, splenknizomai, compassion. And it comes from splank, which means your guts, because they believe that your feelings, emotions came from your guts, which makes sense. Imagine, have you ever been really anxious or scared or nervous, and you just feel like this twisting in your guts? That's what it's saying. Whenever you, that splank needs somebody, that compassion, it's like you feel it deep down in you. This, you care deeply for somebody, and that's what Jesus was, was like. He cared deeply for those around him. So the father leans on the compassion of Jesus but struggles to believe in his ability. And I want to contrast this with another story earlier on in Mark. It's a story of a leper. Now, leprosy was sort of a term they used to describe a variety of skin conditions, and they didn't have modern medicine back then. So imagine you have somebody who has a contagious um, skin condition that can have disastrous outcomes. What do you do? There's, There's only one thing you can do and that is isolate them. So that make them live outside of the town, 
live with other lepers, but certainly never get close to other people who don't have that condition ever again, until they're healed at least. So this leper, who knows how long he's had leprosy? He could, it could have been years since he saw his family, at least close up. It could have been years since he had hugged his parents or his, his spouse or his children. It could have been years since anyone in the town had actually humanized him and showed him love and compassion. And so he hears about Jesus, and it, look at what it says. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing. See, the leper doesn't doubt Jesus' power and ability. He doubts Jesus' compassion. Sort of the opposite of the father. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doubts Jesus' compassion. And I can imagine why. After however many years he's been dealing with this condition of people dehumanizing him and treating him poorly, I don't blame him. And then it says Jesus was indignant, this translation, and, and the Greek word is actually, literally means angry, <laughs> but I think it's hard to like translate as Jesus was angry? What, you know, what's going on there? It means Jesus was angry. And the question is, why was he angry? Why was he mad at the, at the leper for doubting his compassion? I don't think that's what it was. I think Jesus was angry at the situation that caused a leper to doubt that anyone would have compassion on him. I think Jesus is angry at the situations of everyone who's going through pain, anyone who's going through suffering, anyone who's just having hard things happening to him. It makes him angry. See, Jesus is somebody who cares deeply about those going through hard times. And it says that he reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Once again, another question I have. Why did he touch him? He does that a lot in the miracles, especially whenever someone's dealing with something that was deemed unclean. He touches them. And yet there's other situations where, for example, so, uh, like a, a guy comes and he's like, hey, my servant's really sick. Can you come and heal him? And then Jesus is like, oh, he's healed. He heals him from far away. Why didn't he just do that with a leper? Why didn't he just be like, boom, you're healed? He touched him. I think it's because Jesus cares about the whole person. Jesus isn't just restoring him physically, he's restoring him emotionally and mentally, mind, body, and soul. He's telling him, I love you and I care about you and I'm not running away from you no matter what is going on. I reach, he reaches out and touches him and brings healing. So we have these two stories. We have the father with the son who's having seizures who um, believes in Jesus' compassion but doubts his power. And we have the leper who believes in Jesus' power but doubts his compassion. And maybe you can relate to one of those. Who do you relate with? Do you struggle to believe Jesus is capable? Or do you struggle to believe that Jesus is, Jesus is compassionate? Or maybe it's something else. Then moving on in the story, after um, the father said, if you can help us, Jesus said, and verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Everything is possible for him who believes. And now some people will take that in a weird way. Maybe like you just have to amass a certain amount of faith. And once you get to that level, you can make anything happen. And so you're just like sitting by yourself just saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Have you ever seen the old Peter Pan? You know, it's like, I believe in fairies. I do, I do. I believe in fairies. I do, I do. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Instead, I think it's having faith and trust 
in the one who can make all things possible. It's not about what I can do. It's about what God can do and me putting my trust in him. And it might not always happen the way I want. In fact, I can, I can tell you that many times it hasn't happened the way I want in my own life. And even in the Bible, you can see that. But whatever amount of faith is required of the father, it might seem like an elusive hope to him. He's like, I don't even know if I have hardly any faith. And so he cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a strange statement. Imagine if I, you know, I'm a Seahawks fan. If I stood up here and I said, I love the Seahawks. Help my hatred of the Seahawks. You'd be like, hmm, not quite sure what that means. <laughs> I think what's going on here is that we sometimes view faith as binary, right? Like you either are all in and you have 100% belief and certainty in Jesus or you're all in on the other side and you have 100% certainty that Jesus is a nut job or whatever or doesn't exist. But really, for most of us, I think faith is a, a spectrum. It's a journey. And sometimes we are full of faith, and that's amazing. And we are full of faith and trust, and we just sense God's presence around us. And those are beautiful moments. Then other times, we have just the tiniest bit of faith, maybe like the, this father. And all it is is just this desperate hope that Jesus can be with us in the hard times. This desperate hope that maybe there is a God out there who loves and cares this desperate hope that Jesus would be made real in my own life. See, true faith, I wrote this up here, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer, not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. It's not about how much you have, it's about giving that little bit you have to Jesus. In fact, uh, Jesus in other parts of the Gospels talks about how all you need is a faith the size of a mustard seed. And, you know, back then in their world, mustard seeds were the smallest of all seeds. And yet, they yielded pretty big trees. The idea was all you need was just a faith the size of a mustard seed. Give it to Jesus and he can work with that. And what's really interesting is whenever... Um, the father is talking about his son. When Jesus is asking him questions, he talks. But what does he do whenever, uh, what does he do whenever he's asking for faith? He says he cries out. He cries out. Because I think there's something about giving into that hope. There's something about asking for that faith that touches in the deep, deep parts of us. It's very vulnerable and scary. It's that cry of desperate hope when we feel most lost, when we feel most abandoned, when we are about ready to allow despair to rule in our lives. It's a cry that Jesus gave on the cross when he was being crucified and he yelled out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, or my God, my God, no, sorry, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry that even Jesus can relate to. It's a cry maybe that's being felt all across the world in different wars that are happening and different injustices that are being perpetuated. People crying out, God, where are you? It's a cry that you see in the Psalms, right? If you read the Psalms um, in the Old Testament, it's full of people crying out, God, where are you? God, act. God, come on, don't stay far away. Do something. It's full of questioning and being upset with God. I heard this one theologian once say that um, being, being mad at God and asking questions of God isn't really something you can do if you don't believe God exists, right? You can't be mad at a God that doesn't exist, there's like a certain amount of faith that's required to ask a question. There's a certain amount of faith that's required to be upset with God. 
And I think we see that in the story. The father didn't have a lot of faith, but like I said, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a certain amount of faith, but when he risks everything he has on that little bit of faith. See, Jesus met the father where he was at. He met the father in his insufficiency, in his doubt. He met the father in his despair. He met the father in his vulnerability and his pain. Jesus met him there. And then we have the story of the disciples and Jesus. Like I said, they had already cast out demons before. Maybe that made them a little bit overconfident. And one thing that's really interesting is in, so Mark chapter nine, verse 18, when the father is telling, the, uh, telling Jesus how the disciples couldn't drive out the spirit, the last part of this verse that's up on the screen says, they could not, says they could not. Literally, it says they weren't strong. They weren't strong. They were not strong. That's what it says in the Greek. It says they were not strong. They were not strong. And then whenever Jesus um, is alone with the disciples, they're like, hey, Jesus, what's going on, man? Why, why can't we cast them out? And then Jesus says, uh, these kind only come out via prayer. And which leads to the question, what were they trying to get him out with? <laughs> right? Like, well, prayer is just like directing our faith towards God, asking God to intervene in a situation. How are they trying to cast out the demon? Were they trying to be like Jesus who just commanded it to go? Jesus didn't pray. He commanded it. But he's Jesus and they're not. Were they trying like different rituals and incantations that they'd heard other people do? I, I don't know. But they weren't praying. Because whenever you pray, you recognize, like the Father did, your insufficiency and your need for God. Your need for Jesus to intervene and the strength of Jesus to be made real as opposed to the strength of myself. I think they'd gotten a little bit overconfident. I think, I think they forgot they needed to be utterly dependent on the power of Jesus. Really, I think the person who had the most faith here was the Father. And the disciples had experienced sort of a public humiliation, right? The, the teachers and the other scribes were arguing with them. There's a crowd around. It's probably a little bit embarrassing. And sometimes Jesus rebukes the disciples, and sometimes it's a little more gentle. And I think this was a gentle one. Sort of like, come on, prayer, buddy. Like, you can't do it all on your own. But Jesus met them where they're at. Even in the sin of pride, he meets them where they're at. He doesn't abandon them and be like, all right, I'm done with you all. And if you read the Gospels, the disciples mess up over and over and over again. <laughs> it's like the story, the Gospels are all about Jesus and all the things, amazing things he's doing. Then right on the side there is like, the side story is almost like how the disciples keep on messing up. And Jesus never abandons them. He meets them where they're at. He encourages them. He loves on them. He rebukes them when, they're ne when is needed, but he never abandons. So this story is beautiful because it shows how Jesus meets us wherever we are. Whether we're the father with just a mustard seed of faith or we're that leopard who is struggling to believe in Jesus' compassion or we are the arrogant disciples, Jesus meets us where we are. He calls us into new life, to follow him, to trust him. And maybe you feel like the father or the leper and you're going through really hard times. You feel like you're in the midst of your own challenge and it just seems like it's just dark and you feel like that sea in the ground and there's no hope of light bursting through and new life coming. It feels so far away. One thing I was thinking about when I was, when I was uh, 
reading the story is that part where it says that, um, here, we'll go back to it, actually. Mark chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. So when Jesus healed him, then it says, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. I don't know how long that moment was between him looking like he's dead and then Jesus raising him up, but I can tell you that that father thought it lasted forever. <laughs> that my, when my son had a seizure, it lasted like 90 seconds to two minutes, so not very long. But when I found out that was how long it was, I was like, what? It felt so much longer than that. It felt so much longer than that. And there's this concept within the New Testament, this idea of the already, not yet that theologians talk about. It's like, Jesus has already conquered death. He has already conquered sin. He has already defeated sin in our lives, but it's not yet made real. He has already defeated death, and yet we still experience hardship and pain and suffering around us. The already, not yet. And I think we can see that in this story, a brief glimpse of it. The son is already healed, but it's not yet seen by those around him. The son is already healed, but it looks like he's dead. It's not yet made real to those around them. And what's really cool is that Mark alludes to uh, the resurrection because it says, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet. Sometimes that can be translated as raised him up, which if you read in the New Testament, often the disciples talk about how God raised Jesus up from the dead. Same word there. And then it says, and he stood up. And that word, to stand up, can also be resurrected because that, you know, resurrection, it's to stand up. So you could almost say Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he was resurrected. Mark is subtly alluding to the resurrection of Jesus, I think. And I think that's the place that I'm in and maybe you're in at times in my life. That part where Jesus has declared you healed, but you still haven't experienced that resurrection. That part where it feels like it's forever, feels like it's never going to end, but Jesus is there and there is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. But sometimes it's hard to see it. I'd like to invite the worship team up at this point. We're going to close with um, some reflection questions and uh, one more song. I have some reflection questions right here. And if you want and you're in person, you can fill them out. I think they should be at your seat and then drop them off at the boxes as you exit. We love to see people's responses. If you're online, you can fill out connection cards um, in the online uh, on whatever platform and we love to see your responses as well. It's really cool to hear how the Holy Spirit is challenging or encouraging you in, uh, in these different worship services. So, who do you relate to the most? The Father, the leper, or the disciples? And why? And two, is there a situation that you need God to meet you in? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would meet us in whatever situation we're in. If we're like the Father and we're just in a desperate spot, just desperately hoping that you would be real in our life, I pray that you would just be present with whoever's going through that that they would sense your love and your compassion, that they would, um, even in the midst of doubts, know that you are there. <clears throat> I pray that in the midst of sin, they would know you are there, that you're beckoning them, you're calling them to a new life. God, I pray for anyone who feels as though hope is far away. I pray that you would make yourself just so real to them. Holy Spirit, encourage us, fill us up with your presence. I pray that we can be people of hope who go forth 
in the knowledge that you are with us, that wherever we go, you are with us. Like that song said, even whenever I lay a bed in sin in hell, you are there because you love us. In your name we pray, amen.